Hello, welcome to season three, episode 15 of the In The Bin Rugby Pod. Uh, I'm your host today, Andy Wemborn, and I am without my uh, usual dulcet tones of my co-host Patrick O'Donoghue, uh, but I'm joined by uh, Ben Cisneros from RugbyInTheLaw.com. How are you, Ben? I'm good, thanks. How are you doing? I'm all right, yeah, not too bad uh, in these as the phrase seems to be, unprecedented times. Mm, unprecedented uh, is the word of the word of the month, isn't it? I'm, uh, I'm not doing too bad. I say I'm talking to you before we came on. I'm sort of in the sort of nicest position that I still get to go outside and have a bit of routine because I work for the NHS and I'm not cooped up inside all day. But equally, that means I have to go into a hospital every day. So it, it has its pros and its cons. Absolutely. You're doing a fantastic job and everyone, I'm sure, <laughs> is very grateful for everything that you're doing to keep... Uh, to keep the hospitals functioning. And how are, how are you doing? You were saying you're, you're living with your girlfriend. Is this the first time you've lived together or is, <laughs> no, is this no, not no. new? <laughs> no, we, we, we've been living together for a little while but um, in London, but we're actually up in Yorkshire sort of hibernating at the moment. Um, but no, it's all good up here for now anyway, um, out, of the, out of the way of London, which seems to be the main the main issue isn't it yeah nicely in the countryside right I will just say that yeah Paddy isn't here today uh, he he can't join us because his dad is unfortunately quite ill with with things and coronavirus so we're wishing his dad a, a speedy recovery and sending all our best wishes to Patrick um, but we thought we would try and do something a little bit uh, different we're going to sort of obviously we've got Ben here to talk through what like we said is this unprecedented event and obviously with that comes some very weird strange and new uh, legal wranglings. There's been a lot of talk around lots of different things. So we'll try and work through bits of it. The first thing that sort of came up was once people realised that the games weren't going to be played and clubs realised they weren't going to be getting the income in from the games, they realised they had to try and make some savings. And that originally started with could players take a pay cut? Could players get furloughed? And then in the end, it seems to have been not quite a forced 25% pay cut, but a generally agreed 25% pay cut. Is, is that sort of about right? Yeah, I think so. That's pretty much what happened, wasn't it? I mean, ultimately, rugby, as I think everyone sort of understands, is is not the most financially um, secure sport. It's not the most sort of... It doesn't generate the, 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 the greatest revenues. So it's it's already in a slightly precarious position. It's t- you know Most clubs, certainly in the Premiership, are propped up by quite wealthy business people. Um, and I suppose the, the key issue is if there's no games, well, for a start, there's no sort of match day revenue. You know, clubs aren't getting money from tickets and whatever else they might sell on the day. And they're probably also not getting broadcast revenue or they might not. I think I, I did hear it reported that BT was still paying their the, the, the broadcast money. But I, I don't know how long that would go on for, because obviously BT themselves are going to be in a tricky position. And, and it may be that they're losing customers. But of course, these these wealthy business owners ultimately if there's no, if the clubs aren't sort of generating any income themselves, we have to just keep come pumping um, cash in. And presumably, you know, their other business are like businesses are likely to have taken a hit in these times as well. So it quickly becomes quite a perilous situation for these clubs because they have no no real income of their own, and their sort of backers might also be struggling for money or might be sort of reluctant to pump in an endless supply of money. Um, and yeah, like you say, so then the first thing um, to go is, 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 is staff wages and staff in the rugby club obviously includes the players. Um, and, and I think, it, like you said, I think it, it's been reported that there's sort of been a unanimous agreement for that a 25% pay cut is, is about the right sum. I'm not necessarily sure that's, 
that's exactly the case across all the clubs. I think there might be some sort of scale applied at some of them, uh, but you know, not every club's come out and shared the details of uh, of their exact pay cut and structures and things. So we don't necessarily know, but it, we understand that you know the RPA and Premiership Rugby, the RFU, and the clubs have been been talking about sort of negotiating this deal because and the key the first key point i suppose from a legal perspective to, to, to make is that you can't just unilaterally impose a pay cut if you want well, you can but if you do it you're gonna you're gonna face legal legal repercussions you know um ultimately uh, a player's employment contract or any 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 staff of a rugby club will be on an employment contract and um under that contract there's of course an agreed salary and if if that salary is not paid then there's various legal claims which might arise yeah because the and obviously the the problem with that is is the 25 percent wage cut for perhaps an average squad player general figure let's say 40 to fifty thousand pounds a year probably then still they're probably cut their cloth accordingly and 25 percent of that will be annoying but they might be able to get by because they're not spending a huge as big a mortgage yeah. as bigger outgoings 25 yeah. percent cut of five hundred thousand pounds a year for your yeah. marquee players they're then going to be looking at they've probably invested money yeah. elsewhere is that so it, it would be very i suppose because of the unlike say premier league football where most players are on very very high wages there mm. is actually quite a discrepancy between top and bottom yeah, in rugby definitely. and 25 percent to one is is a lot different to twenty five percent to yeah, another. Absolutely, I think that's why it certainly was. It was suggested that some clubs might structure it because you know it, it does differ. But then equally, you know, you could flip it on its head and say, you know, twenty five percent of of let's say of forty k is to someone who's earning forty k might feel like quite a lot more because that would leave them you know with not not a particularly significant income if they've got high outgoings whereas someone who is on a really really high salary could perhaps bear the loss a bit better because they might have got more money saved up and things so you know there's all sorts of personal financial considerations that go into it and and, and it makes it a a sort of a tricky subject to do sort of one uniform policy i think that's that's a really good point um and yeah just to go back to what I, i was starting to say about um you know the potential claims that could arise you know if ultimately if a club um, doesn't pay you in full you could potentially argue that you've been constructively dismissed and of course you wouldn't necessarily want to want to walk away from the club because you know then you're going to lose your job and at this time who really wants to be voluntarily losing their job but you might be able to still argue that your contract's been terminated and that a new one's been uh, essentially given to you and that would that would potentially allow you to claim for um, unfair dismissal and, and and what we call wrongful dismissal, which would obviously get you some compensation and would be really bad news for the club. And there's also sort of more simple claims of simply um, sort of claiming for a deduction of wages. It's sort of a, you, essentially, you know, claiming the money back that you should have been given. So basically, if, if if the clubs didn't get the right consents in place before they did it, or if they just absolutely imposed it no matter what the player said, then they could have really found themselves in quite quite a lot of legal trouble. So. Uh, that's the key point is that it had to be agreed. Um, and, and I think that's why it took a little bit of time for it to sort of be confirmed and, and for things to be set in stone, because although it was being reported that there was going to be this 25% pay cut, I don't think all players across all clubs were necessarily happy with that to begin with. Yeah. Cause this, if you link it to say football, where they were called out quite publicly by the government. Yeah. And I think, I don't think the I don't know if they thought that through properly in terms of the government because it turns out that the players were doing something and like you say, 
you know, in if you take rugby, there's 12 teams with squads of 40 plus people yeah. to organise a group of that big remotely to unilaterally agree to a similar level of perhaps a stepped pay cut, depending on your wage, isn't going to happen in one week. You no, know, I, no sorry, one yes. would be stupid enough. And so, like you say, yeah, it, it does take time to get these things done, but you, it looks like they've they've got something through. From reading your article, the other thing that came up, a thing that you mentioned quite a lot that I hadn't heard of before, was something called a force majeure clause. Which yeah. um, which was mentioned in a, in a couple of the the articles you've written um, for various things about the fact that if that's in a contract because this is such a, a unprecedented event you can sort of claim the contract's almost because is it like almost becomes voided due to the fact this is just so weird yeah that that's sort of the the general idea so a, a force majeure clause essentially. Um, it's a type of clause. It's not like a fixed legal doctrine in English law. There's there's no such thing as force majeure as as, as a sort of legal principle as such. But we, it's quite common in contracts to see what we call a force majeure clause, and and it essentially will say something along the lines of, in the event uh, of force majeure, force majeure being things like acts of God, um, really bad weather, floods, perhaps epidemics, epidemics, outbreak of disease that sort of thing, or fire, it's common, commonly um, commonly in there. Um, if, if, the, if those sort of events occur, then the parties may be released from their obligations under the contracts, or the contract may be put on hold for a period of time, or it may sort of be brought to an end, or, or one of the parties may be allowed to bring it to the end. Um, of course, these events have to be sort of out of the control of the parties. It can't be that one of you's caused the flood or one of you's caused the fires. The idea, idea is that it's uh, uh, something that is so unexpected and un- unforeseen and out of your control that you need to have some sort of mechanism in place to deal with it. Um, because otherwise, one of you could sort of be bearing the losses of that, and that might not really be seen to be quite very fair. Um, so it all depends. The crucial thing with force majeure clauses is that it all depends on the actual wording of the specific contract, and, and it is probably quite unusual. I mean, I'm not vastly experienced in, in looking at employment contracts, and I won't pretend to be, but I think it would be it would be unusual to see a force majeure in, in certainly a rugby uh, playing contract, and it's not in the standard RFU contract. So it's not necessarily the sort of thing that would come up in the context of of, of players, but it's certainly relevant to this to this sort of coronavirus pandemic, and and it has been a prominent issue. Um, and the other point to raise about about force majeure is, if if there isn't a force majeure clause, then then English law does deal with this issue. Uh, it deals with it through what's called the doctrine of frustration. And so that basically means when it's impossible to perform the contract, or when they say when the obligations are so radically different from what they were supposed to be then we can say the contract is frustrated if, if it's not either party's fault, etc. Uh, and in that, in that situation, the, the contract essentially sort of stops, it's discharged, it falls apart. Um, and, and then you know, there's various sort of remedies you can get to sort of reclaim money if you've paid it already and things like that. But, but the general position is the contract would come to an end. Um, and that can be really messy, which is why most part, uh, commercial parties like to have force majeure clauses in place. Because that frustrated thing, that comes in, again, from reading what you were writing about the fact that if they were trying to furlough some of their staff, they can't be associated with work, basically. So then some of the players were very, very nice and actively doing things like uh, social media chats with fans, doing uh, things around the club's social media. The clubs were getting them involved in lots of stuff. Now, if you wanted to then furlough the players to take away some of the financial hit, 
they might not then be able to do that because that would break the furlough because they would be associated with doing work for the club. Yeah. So, so the fr- frustration and, and furlough are, are, are completely separate, but there is, there is a link there, definitely. Um, and the point about, so in, my, in the first article I wrote, I think it was called like pay cuts and, and playing contracts or something. Um, I, I sort of discussed the question of whether a playing contract could be frustrated uh, under English law because of the pandemic. Um, because because there's no force majeure clause, could it be frustrated? And if it if it was to be frustrated, it was it would have to be impossible to perform, which would mean it would have to be impossible for the player to be sort of an employee of the club to perform any of their employment obligation. I think realistically, that's that's not the case. Firstly, because most contracts will be for more than one year, so obviously the con the the, the season the playing of rugby will resume at some point. We hope. Um, so you know that's out of the question there. If you had a contract until the end of this year. It might be arguable that because you can't play matches, you probably can't train. It might be it might be the case you can't train to the end of the season with the team. Perhaps there's an argument that it would be frustrated because it's impossible for you to perform that core bit of your, you know, playing contract. But I would say in the article that because there's so many other things that players can do as an employee of the club, you know, they're a representative of the club, they're a brand ambassador, they probably advertise kit for the club, merchandise, etc. Like like you mentioned, the social media chats and and all these sorts of things that, you know, being an employee of a rugby club goes beyond simply being um, a, a player on match day. Um, and it's the same with footballers. You know, they have so many different obligations these days. Um, so uh, that, that was the point about frustration. It's unlikely that a, contract, a playing contract will be frustrated. Um, the, the point then, we, I suppose we can get on to furloughing. Um, was there something you wanted to say about? So yeah, the only other thing I was going to mention that you mentioned on that is that Obviously, with contract frustration, not paying, is that if the season is is cancelled and and sort of made obsolete, that doesn't sort of stop the clubs. That doesn't hold any sort of sway with the clubs for them being able to not pay players or get out of of contracts because they're, they're not playing basically. Yeah, it, yeah, it doesn't allow them to get out of paying their contracts, paying the players. Sorry, because because like I was saying. It would the contract wouldn't be frustrated if it if it was frustrated that would release the club from their obligations to pay the player in the same way it released the player from their obligations to sort of work for the club. So because it's not frustrated, they wouldn't be able just to say, "Oh, the season's cancelled. We don't need you anymore. We're not going to pay you." If they did that, then there'd be all sorts of um, employment law consequences akin to those that I mentioned before about pay deductions. Cool. Right. Anything else you'd like to add on contracts, furloughing, frustrations? Well, fur- furloughing, I think, is, is, is a whole another discussion in itself because, you know, furloughing is something that basically didn't exist in, in English law or in England or the UK until, you know, whenever it was on the... I, I haven't got the date to hand, but it was... Sort of, oh, it's the start it, of it, March, it, wasn't it? Yeah, around middle of March time. Um, you know, even it was the 26th of March, I think. That was when the guidance was properly published anyway. Um, and so furloughing is this is this term which it doesn't really have it didn't have a meaning in English law um, beforehand. It's it's a, it's a term that's been used in the US a bit. And it basically just means that you've been you sort of placed on leave, but you're still an employee and you're still you're still going to get paid. Um, uh, and in in um, in the, the, the government's current scheme, you have to be sort of off work, um, not working for your employer, not generating any revenue for your employer. Um, for a minimum of three weeks to be to be able to sort of be furloughed under this scheme, and and the key thing about this scheme is that it's it's a scheme for employers to claim money back essentially from the government um, 
to, to cover their staff salaries rather than a scheme for um, employees to claim from the government. So the key, the key thing is, is that employees must be not undertaking work for the employer uh, and they must be on, on leave. Um, and then if, that's, if, if the employees meet that, those sort of eligibility criteria, then the employer can claim from HMRC either 80% of their employees wage for a month or up to you know, up to a cap of um, £2,500 a month. Um, so I think that works out, at, um, you know, if your salary is £37,500, then you would get 80% at the 2500 rate. I think that's right. I haven't got a calculator. Yeah, it's, it's up to, yeah, I think 2500 is the most you can get, but uh, it's, otherwise it's 80%. So again, yeah. with, with the players on the higher wages, it would be... Two thousand five hundred pounds, and again, the higher up the spectrum you go, the less of a percentage of their wage that is, and so they would probably have to come to some arrangement with their club to organise what's going on. Yeah, exactly. And the key point is as well about what you're just saying is that even even if the players are going to be furloughed and are going to accept the two thousand five hundred pounds a month, because as you say, most players will be on above thirty seven thousand five hundred, um, they still have to agree to it because of the same principles we were saying before about employers not being able to unilaterally impose a pay cut, um, this furloughing scheme ultimately does amount to uh, some form of pay cut because employers are probably going to want to pay them the, the lower amount. If that's the case, then the players still have to agree. Um, so so the, the employer still has to take care because they could fall into those employment law holes that we mentioned before. Um, but the other thing is that you don't, the employer doesn't have to pay you only £2,500 a month. The, the scheme doesn't stop them topping that up. So, for example, um, you know, if, if a rugby player is on one hundred grand a year, um, their monthly salary will be a lot more than £2,500. Um, but the, the, the club could pay them an additional amount, whether they wanted to top it up to 100%. I don't, you know, they probably couldn't afford to do or they might not be able to afford to do that, but they, they, they could top it up to an agreed, agreed figure. So maybe there might be a combination of furloughing and pay cuts. So players might be furloughed, um, but and then accept a total of 25% pay cut. So the club would then pay them 75% of their wage and then claim the £2,500 um, from the HMRC at some point down the line when, when the scheme is properly up and running. Given how much uh, each team is, uh, apart from Exeter, appear to be hemorrhaging money it will be interesting to see how many of them top wages up how much they can afford to pay and because like you say and, and unless someone's gonna the big backers are gonna throw money at it there's gonna be a lot of clubs who might it's gonna be interesting to see how this goes at next season the seasons after with how clubs survive because not necessarily just in the premiership but some of the clubs in the championship and national one who are having money backed into them to get i mean look at ealing is, is the easy example who will be losing more money now and they're not getting the chance to go up if it does have a knock-on effect, not necessarily this season, but in a couple of seasons. Yeah, absolutely. I think the the general economic circumstances that we're likely to find ourselves in after this is all over, I think could have could it could continue to have an effect on, on, on these rugby clubs, like you say, at any level, because you know, their backers might be sort of more tentative about pumping money in. Fewer fans might be going to games because they simply can't afford it. People might not be buying all the kit and da da da. All the all their sort of revenue streams could be impacted. So, 
um, yeah, I mean, it, it, it's it's potentially a really troubling time for rugby because because it's so financially precarious. Um, I'm not sure if that makes sense grammatically, but <laughs> I, I <laughs> they're in a precarious mean, position. Yes. That's what I mean. Um, so, so it's quite a sort of complicated picture, actually. You know, the, the clubs will be dealing with the furloughing scheme. They'll be sort of working out whether it's 80% of the monthly salary or £2,500 they can claim from HMRC. Then they'll be working out how much they're going to actually pay the players. Um, of course, it can't be less than they get from the furloughing scheme. That's, that's clear from the government guidance. Um, but then they've got to work out whether they can afford to top it up, whether they can afford to top it up to 100% or whether they're going to be... Um, settling for something less so, so there's, there's a lot of considerations here and, and like you say ultimately um, it's going to be about how much they can afford I think that's that's contracts dealt with quite handily that was that was good <laughs> that was in depth um, I hope I, it all made sense now we've done contracts I think the more not necessarily more interesting but the more um, sort of uh, bit to do with actual the playing side of the game is yeah all leagues, Premiership, I think, are nine rounds off completion, similar for the Pro 14, the Top 14. Europe had three rounds left, quarterfinals and finals, finals. We didn't finish the Six Nations. Is now, and obviously it's the same with Super Rugby and the St. Hemisphere, Rugby has got a very, because it doesn't run a global calendar, it's got very interesting decisions to make around which parts of which seasons are finished do they try and get all parts of all seasons finished and then that might impact on the national game um and because of the way it's all set up it's very difficult to wade through in terms of players needing 12 weeks off in the from the premiership with five weeks of no rugby but players are only allowed to be released for international games in certain windows uh, having read through all of what you've you'd written i was at, i don't envy the person that's got to try and come up with a solution to all of this. Yeah, it's an absolute nightmare, to, to put it bluntly. Um, there's just so many considerations. You know, financial will be at the front of that. The financial concerns are obviously huge. You know, everyone wants money to come in. That's that's quite clear. But then you look at the, the, the potential legal hurdles, sort of the rate we call them the regulatory hurdles, you know, the things in the World Rugby or RFU regulations. Uh, that are in place and and it is really really complicated and tricky to try and work out how feasibly all these games can be fitted fitted in um if, i suppose in the next six months um and it's really yeah like you say you wouldn't want to be the person who had um had responsibility for sorting it all out um and i suppose the perhaps the easiest place to start is with the internationals actually because um that in a way it's going to be potentially the most problematic because of, like you say, the international windows. Um, and it's World Rugby uh, Regulation 9 is, is the key bit of regulation here. And this basically means that um, clubs have to release their players to the international sides, but they only have to do it during the designated um, sort of release windows. Um so there is a release window um, in uh, for the Six Nations, obviously. Uh, there's a release window in July for three weeks in July. And then there's a release window in um, November for three weeks in November. Outside, uh, There are also the Southern Hemisphere ones, <laughs> to be clear. But these are the ones that we're primarily worried about because of the Six Nations and the summer tours. Um, so if, if, if games are played outside of those windows unless there's some sort of agreement between the national side and the clubs, 
then the clubs don't actually have to release the players. They can hang on to them. They don't have to let them go. So that means if you want to replay a Six Nations match, you're going to have to get the agreement of the clubs to for it to be able to go ahead you know, with, with the full, full set of players. Um, unless you can fit into one of the other windows and sacrifice another game, which obviously no one's going to want to do. Um, and it may be possible, you know, it, it is possible for, for World Rugby to, to create uh, an additional window or to sort of vary the regulations slightly, but it has to go through, um, it has to go through them, has to go, it's it formally has to go through the council, the World Rugby Council, which I believe is meeting in May, um, whether or not they have enough information by then to make a decision um, that will allow these games to go ahead and for it to all work, I'm not sure. Or there's sort of an emergency power that it can go through um, the executive committee um, to, to, to make these changes to World Rugby Regulation 9 to allow these windows to maybe be to be shifted slightly. But sort of on the face of it, the Six Nations window is, is um, I can't remember the exact wording, but basically it ends when the Six Nations normally ends. It's not the case that you can play these Six Nations games. It doesn't matter when. There's a fixed window, a period of time. Uh, it concludes on the third weekend of March. That's the wording. Um, so, you know, as it stands, um, there's going to be some sort of a club versus country um, dispute, I think. Yeah, because there's only one other example of it, and that was the foot and mouth. And that just really involved teams going to Ireland. And they got finished in the October, didn't they? And yeah. the calendar was nowhere near as full then as it is now. Um, yeah. And I think the other, again, if it had just been one round of fixtures, they might have been able to slip it in in and around November or perhaps before the season started but the fact I think Ireland and Italy both have two games to complete because their game in the, the fourth round wasn't played makes yep. it even more difficult for for those for those countries so it's not the same it's not the case of just getting one weekend free and trying to come together for one sort of unilateral league agreed we're going to do this weekend and yep. that'll be fine trying to get two weekends they've got to find two absolutely it does that just makes it a little bit more messy and um, then as well, talking about the financial things, you look at, say, England this summer was supposed to be going to Japan, which I imagine was organised, yes, because Japan are now a good up-and-coming side that people want to go and tour. But equally, I imagine that's quite lucrative for the RFU and for the Japanese rugby union. So I can't imagine they're going to relinquish that lightly in the case of, oh, well, we've got to finish the domestic season, so actually we're going to not do our summer tour anymore I imagine there'll be a lot of corporate and sponsors who'll be very keen for that tour to still go ahead yeah from the sponsorship side you're absolutely right and that that's also one of the key the key the key things for for all of these internationals is not just the sort of the rugby regulations but it's also the commercial contracts that come alongside them because they'll be fixed in time as well and yeah they may be they may be able to reorganize these and defer them or delay them or whatever but it's going to take negotiation and rearrangement um and the thing my understanding is with the tours is that the, the home the host union is the one that keeps the gate receipts from from the matches i think both sides are, are able to sort of you know they can they can organize their own broadcast deals and things like that but but it, it's actually japan in a way from the gate receipts that could stand to make the most um and so that's why if the RFU wanted to move the prem, move, move the game, sorry, to accommodate the Premiership, they, they might not, they, they can't necessarily do that without Japan agreeing. And Japan have already cancelled their season, so w- what would Japan have to gain from from moving these games? I suppose they want them to be played at some point, so so they, they may, might have no choice. And in any event, um, because of the travel restrictions and and sort of the social distancing guidelines, etc., 
it might not actually be feasible to play these matches safely and with a crowd um, in July as they're scheduled. So it may be that both sides come to an agreement to move it. But I think as it stands at the moment, um, the RFU have a much greater interest in getting it moved than than the Japanese do. So again, there could be some there could be potential for friction there. I think. Yeah, because I mean, it, especially with the Northern Hemisphere season, they were so far. We were so far along. It wasn't say Super Rugby had had a few rounds. I think they weren't that far into it. If if that season was cancelled, it wouldn't necessarily people wouldn't be they'd be up in arms, they'd be upset. But I don't think there would be the pushback there would be if you cancelled say or just said right the Northern Hemisphere season this season it's going to be written off we're not going to give a trophy out unprecedented event blah 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 blah. I can't Mm. see that because there is only nine rounds left the season is almost there and then you come into the problem with being fortunately on one hand because it's been such a mental year Saracens are getting relegated due to their own incompetence Um, but European qualification would be another one There's, there's so much extra money involved in the Champions Cup I can't imagine that the team's finishing seventh eighth at the moment are going to be too pleased if they just say oh well we're going to use the same I don't know what it was a very strange algorithm they used to do with home and away fixtures and who you've played and who you haven't played and they worked out the points for all of the leagues down mm. and, and gave everyone a, a total I can't imagine that would sit too well if say I don't know I haven't got the table in front of me whoever's in sixth now suddenly became seventh by 0.5 of a point or whatever it was depending on their yeah. on their calculations and then no, all- I think you're right, they, yeah. they don't have European rugby. Yeah, yeah, it's it, that's another definite complication. So, the season is over. The Premiership season is over halfway through, but but nine matches is still quite a lot to still play. You know, it, there's 22 rounds plus playoffs, so that it's only just over halfway through. So, whereas so the RFU leagues, um, if you exclude the Championship, I think most of them, certainly National One, National Two, most teams only had five matches left to play out of around 30. So they were sort of well over halfway. They were sort of um, over three quarters of the way, um, which I think makes it easier to do what they did, which is do the best playing record formula. Um, in this situation where it's only just gone halfway, that would definitely sit a lot more uneasily with a lot of people, I think. Uh, and it would sit uneasily with me. You know, I think for sporting integrity, you can't sort of just make up half the season's results. In the in the extreme circumstances we find ourselves in, I think the RFU doing what they did, it kind of it was it was a tidy solution, and I don't think too many people are unhappy about it because it's so unprecedented. They had to do something, and actually, I don't think it's radically altered a lot of the tables. I think um, there were a few teams who um, hadn't played games, or so so one team dropped quite a bit and another one went up. But I think that was mostly due to number of games played. I think overall it looks quite fair. But if you've got more than, not more than half, sorry, but almost half the season, you know, you've got uh, nine games left, it would be quite an extreme step to sort of do the almost predictive approach to that. And I, I don't think that would be a particularly good option. But then, like you say, if they don't do that, how do they figure out European qualification? Do they just take the table as it stands? But then that can't be fair either, surely. Yeah, and then because at some point, someone is going to lose, not lose face, that's the wrong thing. Something is You're going to either have to lose um, the European fixtures and just not complete those. You're going to have to not have summer tours. Or you're going to, you can't, having what it looks like, when did they last play? It was the beginning of, end of February, March time-ish. And yeah, early March, yeah. You're going to have lost, even if you get get started again, say, middle of 
May, you're going to have lost eight weeks possibly of playing time. And when you think that they're supposed, clubs are supposed to give people 12 weeks off, now, is there, say, some form of argument where they could say they've had their 12 weeks off slightly earlier? But yeah. then for your Lions yeah. players, that's then going to be almost 14 months of continuous play through to next yeah. July. Yeah, I mean, the player welfare, welfare element is another dimension to it, which makes it complicated because, like you say, so there's this rule... Uh, and I'm not exactly sure where this comes. I think it's in the professional game, sorry, professional game agreement, um, which is sort of one that's been negotiated between uh, Premiership Rugby, the RFU, and the RPA as the players' representatives. Um, and so, some of the provisions of this sort of agreement are um, in in player the standard player contract, and so, some of the others I don't know if it's in the professional game agreement or if there's another sort of player welfare agreement. But the the key bits of it are for these purposes. Um, that there has to be a minimum of 12 weeks between the Gallagher Premiership Rugby Final and Round 1 of the following Premiership season. And there has to be, you ha- players have to have a mandatory five-week post-season rest, including two weeks of absolute rest and three weeks of active rest, which means that they're allowed to go to the gym and things, but still, they're off rugby for um, five weeks. So if, if the season goes on and on, as it's extended to, to, to try and complete it beyond the 30th of June. If it goes beyond, in fact, earlier than that, if it goes beyond the date which is currently scheduled for the Premiership final, which they've already said it's going to have to, that means there can't be 12 weeks before the currently scheduled round one of next season. So they probably will have to push that back. Um, then there's a five-week uh, five rest as well, um, which would mean there's essentially a seven-week pre-season um, they might think that that's perhaps not necessarily not necessary, but if they want to vary this, they're going to have to they're going to have to agree it. Um, the RPA and the players they're going to have to agree to reduce this rest time. And like you say, I think they will they will say, well, you've had a lot of time off now, um, so let's reduce the gap between the two seasons. And they're going to have to. I mean, there's no way they can have a 12 week gap after completing this season um, because there just simply won't be enough time then before the Lions tour, which is then fixed for next season. Uh, but if they don't have any gap, like you say, then there's going to be potentially a 14-month season. Players could be playing from you know, um, June 2020, possibly even May 2020 if they get it up and running, all the way through to the, the end of the Lions tour, which is uh, at mid-August 2021. And that's just ridiculous. That's obscene, yeah. I mean... It is. Yeah, you can't... I mean, you wonder whether they'll perhaps have to cut the Premiership Cup next season in terms of what what, yeah, what, mean, they, what they can do in the, the, for the RFU. You don't know what... I mean, France are a law unto themselves, so I'm, I can't... I dread... Yeah. Because the top 14 is already busier than than the Premiership. That's very true, yeah. And they they aren't quite as nice with their international breaks down there either. So any of the yeah. players playing in France... And it's, it's, it's going to be... I mean, they're, they're, sorry, go on. Yeah, there's some there's some sort of stats on it as well that research has suggested in the past that I think it's 35 or or fewer match involvements reduces the risk of injury in one season. So if if you play continuously for 14 months without any rest, you know we're saying that probably is is equivalent to like a season because there's no rest. I assume that's how you define a season: it's a period of continuous playing. There could be way more than 35 matches played. You know, there could be almost, um, and, you know, it wouldn't be double that, that that's crazy, but it, it, it could be an awful lot more than 35. So the risk of the, the risk of injury to players um, is, is going to increase if they don't have some sort of gap. Um, 
and I think players will still push for this five week off 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 season because ultimately they won't have been able to really go on holiday during this time off. They'll they'll want holiday. They, they have families as well. Once this is all over, they're going to want to have a break. Um, so I, I think probably that that might stay the five week um, rest, and then they might um, they might just have to add a few weeks onto the top of that. To, to give themselves a pre-season or maybe have four weeks completely off and then have four weeks pre-season to get back into things for, for season 2020, 2021. But yeah, it's just another complication. This, this player, well, these player welfare agreements that they're going to have to be changed if they're going to compress the two seasons. This is going to take a lot of fun meetings, I imagine, for some people. I mean, I can't... Yeah. The, the, I say the players will, will... It's weird, isn't it, to say they want a holiday because like this, I mean people who are like yourself who are stuck at home this isn't people say oh it's nice to be off work but it's not a holiday you are not caged that's the wrong word but you are yeah. you know you're not going to a beach somewhere you're not yeah. enjoying nice not going out for dinner, dinner. going it's, out for drink da-da-da, yeah and there is a in terms of a holiday is relaxing i think for everybody there is a slight stressed element to the times it's you no one is for sure is is very relaxed and equally i imagine the wives and girlfriends and partners of these rugby players would quite like I imagine they're very annoying to live with because they normally spend four or five six hours a day running around energetic getting their frustrations out and now they're at home all the time I imagine yeah. there's going to be a bit of some people quite wanting them to go away for a little bit to, to yeah it, I mean and especially if, if for players that have kids you know that have been off school it's, it's just going to be getting cabin fever isn't it um so so i i think there will be a break between the two seasons there's there's no way that it's going to be played through in one continuous um period of time but it's it's, it's going to be a matter of negotiation they're going to have to sort of um thrash out and, and come to some sort of compromise because if there is 12 weeks that's what that's three months that's another three months they're yeah. not going to find another three months if i had to put money on it i, I would imagine that the summer tours will will not be played in the summer There'll be some sort of arrangement with perhaps a change to the autumn internationals where teams play the teams they might have had to play in the summer and there's a little bit of a change there. And in England, I imagine the Premiership Cup will go and whether or not they can reduce next season. So almost American football style, instead of playing home and away, there's a draw and you play each team once, either at home or away. And then you can shorten the season a little bit and it's truncated slightly. But otherwise, you just don't have physically the amount of weeks needed to play the amount of games as well as have the amount of designated rest yeah perhaps perhaps i think you're right the premiership cup surely is going to go but then if the summer tours are moved or even if they're not moved i mean you could have the situation i suppose where the premierships played alongside the summer tours like the six nations i mean that wouldn't necessarily be ideal but that may well happen so that if, if they don't get moved they might be okay but if they have to move those as well um, yeah, like you say, it's going to get compressed. Uh, I, I, I'd be surprised if they drastically reformat next season in terms of the Premiership. I, I think they probably will have enough time if they take out those sort of Premiership Cup weekends. But then equally, in the player welfare agreement, the Premiership Cup is designated as a competition to give those players who play all the time a week off. It's it's actually in the in the agreement that the Premiership Cup is to reduce the amount of match time for, for the sort of top top players. So if they take that away, then suddenly players who might be getting a week here and a week there off during the course of the season, they won't be getting that either. So 
um, it's going to, again, that's going to be another matter to, to come into the negotiation, I imagine. Now, the final part of this rescheduling thing that I think is the fun bit that's quite intriguing is the fact that we saw this week Johnny May is off to Gloucester. Quite a lot of contracts have been agreed. Carl Sinclair's on the move. All these people who have agreed to move at the end of the season. Well, the end of the season is the 30th of June. Now, can you imagine a scenario where Bristol make the playoffs and the final and the semi-final happen to be in July and all of a sudden they suddenly get Kyle Sinclair and Radrandra coming in or Gloucester make the playoffs and having played all season for Leicester, Johnny May suddenly gets to play a semi-final at King's home. Is, do we think that there will be this will happen or do you think there'll be a gentleman's agreement in that the players will play for the only one team in designated 1920 season games and only be and only played the 2021s, even if the dates aren't quite aligning. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know what what they're going to do, but obviously, if 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 those players do move and play out the remainder of the current season for new clubs, that's that's really unsatisfactory from a from a sporting perspective and from like an integrity perspective. It completely distorts the the balance of the competition, sort of the balance of the um, respective strength of the teams um, for this year's competition. Um, you know, Bristol signing Kyle Sinclair and Semi Randrandra, that is signing two genuine like world beater players, which will make them potentially uh, sort of a top four or even, you know, potentially a top top two club. Whereas they're currently, they're pushing, I think they're, I mean, they're pushing top four and top six at the moment anyway. But, fourth or third, I think, yeah. Yeah, but it would it would really cement their place. And I mean, they're, they're third, bearing in mind that Saracens aren't there, I suppose. But but it would really make them a, a, a like outstanding team, having two world play, world-class players like that. Um, and then, and similarly, Leicester losing Johnny May, that's, that's a, um, you know, a guarantee, sort of a try, try machine um, going, going to Gloucester. That, that's going to be a big shift. And if, if there's lots of these, then it's just going to distort the, distort the competition. And, and that's not really, that's not what sport's about. That's not right. I mean, you know, mid-season transfers do happen. You know, I mean, already this season, actually, Chris Ashton signed um, for Harlequins, having left Sale under some sort of a cloud. That was weird, yeah. I mean, it was quite odd and out of the blue, but it happens sometimes. I think we've seen in the past Marlon Yard go, um, he actually went the other way, didn't he? He went from Harlequins to Sale mid-season. So mid-season signings do happen, and normally not too much is sort of said from an integrity perspective. But I, I think it's just if there's quite like a wholesale change, you can have potentially a lot of Saracens players who are currently Saris players that they've agreed to go to be loaned to other premiership clubs. They, they, those agreements will come into force as well. So you could potentially have um, players from Saris sort of being dispersed throughout the league. And Saris obviously have quite a lot of good players. So that could, again, that could be a radical change. And I think it's the fact that there'd be potentially so many transfers that makes it so unsatisfactory. However, there is a really important bit of regulation which could bring a sort of bring a stop to this. Um, and RFU regulation um, 14 basically creates a transfer deadline for the season for for sort of mid-season transfers. Um, and this year, the transfer deadline is the 17th of April 2020 for the Premiership. So. To, 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 to when, when a player transfers, obviously they sign a contract with the club, but they also have to be, with their new club, sorry, but they also have to be registered with the RFU to play for that club. 
And so, that has to be done by the and, April and the 17th. The bit, yeah, that, okay. the registration with that club is the bit that has to be done by April the 17th. Okay. Um, and so if, if even if though these players are sort of going to be under contract with their new club from the 1st of July 2020, um, they won't be registered to play for those clubs at that time. Because so so the regulations are in place from from August 2019 onwards for for this season, and they will apply for this season for as long as it goes on. That's my understanding. Um, so there's no way that their new club would be able to register them if the deadline stays as it is, as it is anyway um, to play for them in the 2019-20 season. So um, then you could have the weird position where Johnny May or Carl Sinclair they they move clubs because their employment contract changes. They're no longer employed by Harlequins and Leicester. They're by, employed by Gloucester and Bristol. Um, but actually, they're not allowed to play because the RFU regulations stop them being registered. And then the premiership regulations say that you can't select a player who is not registered with the RFU to play for you. Oh, okay. So these players could essentially be sitting around for however long it takes to complete the season. I mean, I assume that they'd be allowed to take part in training. There'd be nothing wrong with that but they couldn't play matches. So then does Bristol say, okay, well, we'll, we'll, we'll take Sinclair now because then that means you don't have him. Um, and then you get just loads of squads without a lot of their players being able to play. Um, and things will just move around and be very strange, basically. It will be a really weird position. Or because of this rule, do all the clubs, like you say, come to a gentleman's agreement where they say, okay, Let's let's all sit down and agree that these contracts will start, um, you know, first of September instead, or when, whenever it needs to be. But in the same way that pay cuts have to be agreed on a sort of one-to-one basis, or, or, or everyone has to consent to them, every player will have to consent to their contract being varied. Otherwise, there's going to be a breach of contract. And I suppose that um, so with big money it's moves, not easy. With big money moves like Sinclair's as well, if if say they did agree and he went at the start of September, say instead of the start of July, that's two months off his contract, which is given, which is like fifty grand, which they could then against the salary cap, that's perhaps another player. So that there's well, a, a loophole. Salary there. cap. Let's let's come on to the salary cap in a minute. But but you're absolutely right. So why would if a player's just signed a big money move? I mean, I don't know the exact figures with Sinclair, but let's say there's a young player who's leaving a leaving his current club, going to a new club on double the money, let's say, why would he want to give up two months of his new double wages um, if he doesn't have to? I mean, yes, maybe he feels loyal to the, to the club he's currently at and he wants to see out the season. There may be players in that position. They want to stick with their current club. But equally, the players would be completely within their rights. Say, no, no, we agree. I, would play, I would be your employee from the 1st of July 2020 and you would pay me this amount. Um, and I don't want to receive my lower salary for another two months you know it, it's there's so many complications with things like that and players you know what about players coming from abroad the the premiership you know the premiership might be able to sit down with the rpa and come to some sort of agreement you know if all the players sign up to it um whereby the contracts are delayed but what about players coming in from abroad a, a, a club's gonna say okay we won't pay them either or what about if their current season's been cancelled now those players are unemployed or yeah, that those players would be unemployed for two months. You know, um, I think um, Harlequins have signed Andre Westays and haven't they? The South African centre. Yeah, so if, yeah. let's say Super Rugby is cancelled, but it's not. But let's say that it is, um, and so his contract might finish on the on the thirtieth of June. If Harlequins sort of, as part of the English approach, said, 
okay, we're not starting our new contracted players until the 1st of September, then he's unemployed for two months, so he's earning nothing. It's just not going to work. Um, and equally, players going abroad to other leagues that might be in a different position. Um, so, yeah, it, it, trying to extend the, sen- the season and extend the contracts is almost impossible. So it may well be, like you say, um, that players will be playing for other clubs but then you've got the RFU registration rule, which says they have to sit out. But will the RFU make some sort of rule um, to change that? That might be the solution, in which case it's the integrity of the competition which will have to be sacrificed rather than any, any, any player's individual contract. Yeah, and it, I suppose it's because if, if there's nine rounds left, that's nine weeks. So June, May... Oh, you're gonna May June. That's only eight weeks. So you you are gonna go into July even with regular season games. It's not just gonna be say the playoffs. In which case you can almost unless by certain because Leicester aren't making the playoffs. So and just trying <laughs> to give players who might be transferring to yeah. teams. That might, I don't. Quinn's Bristol could, Bristol could happen. Can you you know? Can you imagine that at Ashton Gate and all you of know. a sudden Sinclair's got a Sinclair Bristol shirt. Sinclair the winner. Yeah. Yeah. There's gonna it's like it's gonna be tricky now. Salary cap we touched on. Yeah, I mean, that's that's quite... I mean, if, if things stay as they are in terms of contracts and contracts um, end on the 30th of June and start on the 1st of July and nothing is done to make any sort of change, then actually it's not messy because the salary cap year runs in the same, in the same time frame as player contracts. So it runs from the 1st of July every year to the 30th of June each year the next year um so if the contracts just go ahead as normal and players you know switch clubs then that's fine um it will just be a slightly odd situation where the salary cap year 2020 2021 actually includes it will covers a period of time when the 2019 20 season is still being finished but if the players move, it doesn't really matter because the payments will always be, all be the same. The complexity will come if the contracts are adjusted, if, if players agree to stay with their current clubs for a bit longer, or other players defer their arrival and things like that. Um, and if, if they are going to do something like that to really preserve the integrity of the competition, um, then some sort of adjustment or relaxation of the salary cap regulations um, will need to be made, but of course, if you if you just relax the salary cap, then that opens up the potential for massive exploitation of that relaxation. You know, if we say, okay, we're not going to apply the salary cap for this period, then clubs could say to their top players, oh, 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 we'll pay you like an extra million quid for this couple of months, and then oh, maybe next next year you'll you'll take a bit less. You know, all those sorts of things could happen. So you're, you're not trying just, to insinuate that the clubs would try and get around the salary cap, are you? Because that that sound, that never happens. I mean, it's it's never happened. <laughs> no. Oh no way! Yeah. <laughs> no, no, no. I, I I'm kidding. But, <laughs> but there is the potential for those sort of things to happen if a club was so willing. And uh, and it is a fair point that it's and happened, they've, they've proven know, themselves willing. It's, it's proven that it's happened before. Um, and there's been rumours of other clubs trying to exploit it, even even since the Saracens thing. So. You know, it's not out of the question. And, and the pu- purpose of the regulations is, is quite clear and they should, the purpose of them should be upheld, if, if at all possible. So I, I was thinking, I think I put in my article, that if, if contracts are moved and, you know, payments are going to be slightly different, then there'd have to be some sort of dispensation scheme where um, 
clubs could sort of claim for the amount extra they had to pay. Because the, the thing is, if the con- if current players' contracts are extended beyond the end of the season because they're going to be leaving, then the clubs essentially will be paying them more than they'd originally planned to. Um, and it may well be that that then has a knock-on effect for next season's salary cap. It may mean that they actually spent more than they were planning to. It might mean they, they pay less than they were planning to because they haven't got their new big money player coming in. But across the league, it's plausible that if you end up paying um, one player an extra two months wages, uh, who you were going to be getting rid of, then that might tip you over the salary cap. So there, there would have to be some sort of dispensation scheme, uh, I think. Um, but it, yeah, it, it's hopefully, hopefully it, it won't come to that because um, things will be tidied up a bit more neatly. Yeah, I think from... I, given the way it, it all sounds like it's it with the transfer special and salary cap I imagine they might just say we're just going to let people move at the end of June because trying to do a workaround where it fits in with the salary cap with teams not play and all that just let them move and hope for the best uh, and yeah. I think <laughs> just because if they're having to try and reschedule the season work out internationals and then try and sort out everyone's pay without clubs going under a simple solution to one problem might be the way that they go <laughs> Yeah, and, and and sort of clubs staying staying afloat and things is also important because clubs may not have budgeted for those extra two months of pay that they're going to have to pay those players. So that could really rock the boat financially too. Um, the one thing I was going to say is that if that's going to happen, I think that the RFU should move that um, transfer deadline because, I mean, there's, there's no real reason why they shouldn't because normally round, uh, sorry, what is it, round um, 14, I think, we're up to. That's going to be the next round of yeah, matches yeah, or yeah, something. Yeah, because, yeah, yeah no, nine no, to go, yeah. Yeah, so normally that would be before the 17th of April anyway. So I, I think just because we've shifted it, that date, you know, there's no reason for it to maintain, to, to, to stay as the 17th of April. The purpose of it is we don't want players switching sides too late in the season, like when it's almost, when it's almost all over. Um, so moving it sort of proportionately to, to where where the season's going to be and what that what point that would have been in the season, I think would be fine from sort of an integrity perspective. Um, at, but, you know, ultimately allowing players to switch d- does perhaps slightly um, denigrate the integrity of the Premiership, maybe. Um, arguably, if, it's, if, you know, if there is this sort of wholesale change of players. But uh, I was talking to, about this with someone the other day and it got me thinking that, you know, this season already has been so problematic and um, has had so many issues with it already. You know, Saracen's getting their points deduction for a start. Then you had the this sort of behind closed doors um, relegation of Saracens, which was very out of the blue. And um, there was no real clear explanation given for why it happened. So then you have the position where half the season has actually been played, where you know the team going down and Saracens are still playing everyone and potentially taking points off other teams, even though they're all going down. Uh, sorry, they're already going down. So arguably the, the integrity of the competition has already been messed with because Saracens have, have been sort of interfering, even though they're automatically relegated no matter what happens. So, you know, one could say that the integrity of the competition this season has already been... <laughs> sort of done away with so why, why worry about it now just just get the easy solution change the transfer date allow these players to move if it ends up that 
Kyle Sinclair scores the winner against Harlequins in the Premiership final, then we'll all just have to live with it. Yeah, I imagine the RFU are very much looking forward to the end of this season um, for, for many, many reasons. <laughs> I reckon you're probably right. Yeah. Oh, dear. <laughs> well, um, is there anything else you'd like to add or I've missed off or we haven't touched base with? I, I think we've covered the main stuff. The only thing I'd, I would say is that, you know, we've spoken a lot about the rugby issues um, and sort of the rugby rules and things, but there will also be these commercial agreements in place, um, which may also have to be varied and, and sort of maybe delayed, deferred or, or, or cancelled. Um, and, and that's where, going back to our discussion at the beginning about force majeure clauses, that's where those are going to be particularly important um, because you, you'd imagine that certainly the key contracts, you know, um, um, you know, the broadcasting contracts, the sponsorship contracts, they will have force majeure clauses in them. Um, so you've just got to hope that they're, that they're broad enough to cover something like um, an outbreak of disease and that that might allow sort of everyone just to walk away or it might allow them to, to sort of delay the performance of them. Because otherwise, um, if, if, you know, the games can't be staged for whatever reason, if, if the force majeure doesn't cover it, it's the there's the potential that... Um, you know, the, the the Premiership might be in the breach of contract in breach of contracts with BT, for example. Well, because BT um, have, I mean, I've I've been allowed to cancel, not cancel my subscription, but uh, if you like furlough my subscription uh, yeah. for a little while. So <laughs> you know, they they you know, and Sky Sports have been the same. Not that they say necessarily cover the Premiership, but they you know they do have rugby on. Where you know they've very kindly said you don't have to pay for two months. Now I can't imagine that the Premiership rugby clubs are going to be too keen on taking a two-month break from their broadcasting revenue, um, as it is such a high percentage of their income. Yeah, well, and I think the key thing is if these games are never played. So if we've been talking a lot about you know how they're going to finish the season, but you've got to consider the possibility that what if they can't? For a start, what if the you know the social distancing rules and and the government restrictions, travel bans, just mean it can't be done? Uh, or or if you know. Um, for whatever reason, they decide for integrity purposes, it's better just to knock it on the head, start fresh in July, have the tours go ahead, then restart the season as normal. They might that that's a viable option. Then, then you potentially in a situation where the the, the, the sort of Premiership Rugby and the RFU may be in breach of their it will be Premiership Rugby, not the RFU actually, but Premiership Rugby may be in breach of their agreement with BT for not putting on the games, and that's where the the force majeure clause. Or maybe the, the doctrine of frustration would come in. Um, so does does the force majeure clause allow them to to cancel the contract? Obviously, that would mean the clubs aren't going to get their revenue, but it might allow them to get out of the contract. Um, and if if the clause doesn't cover it, then there's there might be an argument, like I said before, about frustration. Then you have to show that it was actually impossible for the for the matches to be played, which could be quite difficult if if it's just a commercial decision they decide. So, you know. PRL have those commercial considerations, sort of commercial legal considerations to weigh up as well um, when, when thinking about what they're doing, because the, 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 the sponsors and the broadcasters are going to be quite keen to get their money's worth, you'd would, imagine. Would there be, a, again, not knowing the, 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 the technicalities, if it, say, was f closed down, it's impossible to do, all these contract clauses are met, is there then a chance for either if... BT then say they, they won't pay the clubs and the clubs don't get the money or anything. Is there then some way that they insurance purposes or will there be, will someone have insured? Because I know, say, I read that Wimbledon have had quite an ex expensive 
part of their insurance contract for the past few years and mm. it's actually paid off now because they're going to get quite a lot of money from their insurer because Wimbledon's been cancelled but they, yeah. you know, they've been paying a million dollars or whatever it is a year to have this pandemic clause in their insurance contract yeah w- would there be a case where people could claim obviously as insurance as it's not their fault and would that if if yeah country- I mean you sort of nailed it on the head there with the Wimbledon point it's it's it would be completely about whatever their insurance policy says um so if if clubs have insurance policies which um cover pandemics and the outbreak of disease meaning they suffer a drastic loss of revenue and, and their if their insurance policy covers that then yeah they can claim and they, they they might be able to claim everything that they've lost or haven't haven't gained um equally you know it may well be that bt sport have have something in place if they lose because they will have lost revenue as well. Um, so it, it it all depends on the individual employment, uh, sorry, <laughs> insurance contract, not employment contract, insurance contract. Um, so yeah, you can't really comment. But the fact that Wimbledon paid because I saw that story as well, they paid like, what like was it? two million, like $2 million, million dollars a year, yeah, for seventeen years or something. But they're getting back the like one hundred and thirty million dollars. Yeah. The fact they had to pay that much for that clause would suggest that insurers probably aren't willing to cover this normally. And I imagine, I imagine most clubs are currently on the phone to their insurers to get this clause written into their new contracts. Yeah, I mean, if they can afford it, if you know, if, if that's the cost of that sort of cover. I mean, presumably for Wimbledon, it's particularly high because the, you know, the, the income is so high. But yeah, I, 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 I don't know whether it would be in most insurance contracts, and it, it may well not be. Oh dear! Can you imagine trying to write that contract and all of this? They'll, they'll be getting stupider and stupider. It'll go from like pandemic to you know giant lizard King Kong attack to <laughs> they'll just be it'll be like oh it'd be getting ridiculous. Um, yeah, yeah. I think we've covered it. I think we largely have. It's a pleasure there's, as there's, always. There's, I, yeah, thanks for having me on. I think the the overall point to make is that there's just so many dimensions to this. Um, obviously, the coronavirus is a is a really sort of devastating event for the world. And, and there's so, so many terrible repercussions of it, but the sports industry is going to be hit and it has been hit already. And, and rugby in particular, given its financial potential, financial instability could be one of those worst hit. Um, and there's just so many elements involved in trying to get things back up and running. Um, particularly when you consider the crossover between the club game and the international game. Um, it's just, it really is, um, a legal minefield. Um, so there's going to be, have to be so much negotiation, so many uh, agreements in place to make sure that it all um, can be resolved without too many disputes because there's plenty of ground for, for disputes to arise here. Um, you know, we just got to hope that things stay civil because, I mean, lawyers will be hoping that they don't, but um, <laughs> those those of us with an interest in getting the, 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 seeing the game um, thrive and, and continue to be played um, with good financial resources behind it, which I hope that it um, gets resolved quickly and, and, and relatively smoothly. Yeah, it's it's a complex with, like you say, all the different bodies, the different seasons, yeah. northern, southern. Like you say, all oh, the yeah. different clubs. It's it it's like playing three D chess, isn't it? It's going to be <laughs> it's going to be obscene. But I think what, what you're saying as well is, I think everyone should be hopefully working on this because non-stop at the moment to try and make sure that when they get given a date they are ready to do something because I think not planning for a restart in the next you know however long would would be ridiculous because you don't know when it's going to start so you would hope that there are plans afoot for if it starts in May if it starts in June if it starts in July they're currently working Mm. on 
all the possible parameters so that when they do get a date, everyone can suddenly click into gear. Because what you wouldn't want is that them, um, the government to say, okay, we're opening up, everything can start again, middle of May, start of June, and everyone to suddenly go, oh, we should probably start planning for that now then. You would hope that these discussions yeah. are massively taking place all as we yeah. speak. I mean, I'm, I'm sure they are, but like you say, you'd hope there's contingencies in place for, you know, what, what if you can't start it in June? Then what do we do? What do we cut next season? When do the tours get played, etc.? Yeah, I mean, there must be so much contingency planning going on right now. Um, you, you've just got to hope that the clubs and, and the unions can be on the same page because I, I can see that being a real sticking point because ultimately, I mean, ultimately they, they can go along, run alongside each other, but no one wants no one wants internationals to be played at the same time as, as the Premiership because, you know, that, it means the best players aren't playing in the Premiership, basically. Um, uh, but then, you know, that, that, that assumes that the Premiership clubs are going to agree to release them in the first place, <laughs> um, which they don't have to do unless World Rugby does something. But if World Rugby does something, they could come under some internal pressure from the clubs and, and the unions. Um, so that could get political as well. Um, and with the elections happening in World Rugby as well, um, you, you do wonder if, if the political element might count for quite a lot, actually. Yes, uh, but that's that's perhaps a conversation. That's a different, for different day. <laughs> conversation. Although I did like that. Uh, I think it's Mr. Pichot was saying that he once uh, one of his things was to get a really good rugby computer game out, which I thought was yeah. uh, was an excellent line to go. that's, yeah, that's it, what we need right now. Yeah, I mean, it probably seems like the least of rugby's concerns right now. But to be honest, I think it's a, it's a really good idea. I mean, I've seen quite a lot of people say, yeah, it's not as easy as just sort of clicking your fingers and having a new rugby game ready. And I appreciate that, but. I think, you know, when I think about how much I've enjoyed playing, um, you know, FIFA over the years and how that, that's made me interested in football. I wasn't, re- as a kid, I was never interested in football. When I started playing FIFA with my friends, I suddenly, I suddenly got interested. And maybe, maybe that could be the way that rugby could go. You know, it would be fantastic. But like, like we said, that's probably it. The, the election debate's probably one for another we can have We can have to get you back on to do an election podcast as well at some yeah. point. Yeah, maybe we will. Right, so uh, thank you again. Like I say it's always a pleasure. Um, and no, thanks very much. Stay safe in the uh, in the unprecedented times. Yeah, likewise, and um, send my regards to Paddy. I hope uh, I hope everything's all right with him. Yes, life. well, yeah, his uh, say his dad is one of our, our biggest fans and uh, top listeners. So yeah, we we will wish him a, a speedy recovery. Yeah, all the best. Cheers, mate. Nice to talk to you. Thank you. Bye bye. Yeah, thanks a lot. See ya.